Thank you, girls, for the beautiful number. That was uh, Karis Fant and Kinsley Arand, Chloe Briney, and uh, Taylor Grace Tracy. So, so thankful that that truth is being engraved, ingrained in their, their young minds and hearts at this age. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out now for our children's church. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church for first through third graders just down this hallway here on the left. Pick them up right after the service. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 1. If you have been here for consecutive weeks, you know that that phrase is one that we have said over and over and over again. In fact, I had somebody comment this week, Pastor, if you're going to spend so much time on so few verses, we need bigger journals. <laughs> you know, and so I'm glad we're taking notes. <clears throat> so much packed into these first 18 verses as John is building his case. One of the things that we enjoy, the activities that we enjoy as a family, especially with our kids, uh, I shouldn't say we, I should say I, because it was part of my childhood, my wife puts up with us, uh, in this is that uh, we like to watch The Mandalorian. How many of you know what The Mandalorian is? You, okay, figured that out. Some of you are like, oh yeah. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? Well, it's part of the Star Wars franchise, and uh, I grew up watching the Star Wars movies, and um, when The Mandalorian came out, I watched it with, uh, with our three olders, and they very quickly uh, got into the storyline. We had to get caught up on some of the characters and the backstories, which may have taken some bedtime stories to explain to them who was who and what was going on. But um, after the first couple episodes, we uh, embraced the series, and each series would end with a series finale, to where there would be little many storylines going on along each episode, but, but overarching, arching, however you want to say it, the entire series was always one big storyline, and, and they would announce through, you know, commercial, social media, whatever, the season finale comes out this Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. And with great anticipation, we would gather together as a family at some point and, and watch the season finale. And during that season finale, if you're familiar with any sort of uh, series like this, all of the, the loose ends that seem like they're going to take forever to come together are finally tied off and the characters are, are brought to justice or they are vindicated. And one thing that we say in our house a lot whenever, uh, whenever we, we watch a show together is don't worry, the good guys always win, right? Because that's true. That's just how how these stories work. It's how plots work in our human condition. And in that season finale, sure enough, shockingly, although it seems impossible, the good guys come out on top and the Mandalorian comes out victorious. And finales always work that way. Sometimes there's left a little bit of a an open thread because there just might be a next season, right? But in general, the way that finales work is that all of these different strings and all of these different tracks that have been being built all come together in most of the time in one moment. One moment. 
and I'm not at all comparing the Gospel of John to the Mandalorian, but I use that as an illustration, that finale to illustrate what I believe John is doing here with these last few verses before he launches into what Christ has done for us in and his actions, he must first build the solid foundation of who Jesus is. And so in these last few verses, starting in verse 15 and going down through verse 18, John is taking these strings and he's bringing them all together and he's bringing them into one place and he's tying it all together, especially in verse 18, with this one moment of this finale of the prologue. And so you could call this message, if you would like, the end that introduces the beginning, right? Because John is really ending his prologue and introducing the beginning of his treatise on the life of Jesus and and his gospel account that begins in verse 19. And you can see that in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. It's John the Baptist, but, but that's his beginning to his, his gospel narrative that will wind through the next 20 chapters. And with that in mind, and really for the, for the last time in, in this series publicly, I'd like to, to read through verses 1 through verse 18, as we've done every week to remind ourselves what John is doing and to engrave in our hearts and our minds to imprint this on our souls, these unalterable truths that John records through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he parallels that as he bookends in verse 18. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. Our text for the morning begins in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then this verse, which parallels verse 1, No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he 
has made him known. The reading of the word of God. Heavenly Father, we ask for supernatural power this morning as we look into your infinite and eternal word, a word that is preserved forever in the heavens. May we understand it this morning. And if there is one here who's with us who is enveloped in darkness, may this light bring light to their soul. And may they cast themselves into your arms by faith. In your name we pray. Amen. The entire prologue of John's gospel centers around the good news that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come. That the Word became flesh. This gospel can be summed up in Jesus Christ. The gospel is who Jesus is and what he's done. You can summarize the gospel in that moment. If you misidentify Jesus or if you get what he's done wrong, you miss the gospel. And so what John does is he unfolds for us the truth, first of all, of who Jesus is. And then he's going to make a case, now that we understand who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done. But this entire prologue centers around the gospel of the grace of God. God has given us his son. He has offered forgiveness from sins. And we recognize, as John reminds us in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that it is only through this person, this God-man Jesus, that we can receive life. Life does not come through being born into a certain family. It does not come through attendance to church. It does not come through actions or, or works that would somehow gain you merit with God. It comes through Jesus alone. He is the life from God. It also reminds us that through his righteous life and atoning death, he offers salvation to all who come to repentance and faith. And so we must embrace this prologue in order to, to see the Father, in order to embrace the Father. Once again, John reminds us in 1 John 2, 22 through 23, that whoever denies Jesus, whoever denies the Son, is also denying the Father. So you can't get to God outside of Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way outside of him. There is no truth other than him. There is no life other than Jesus Christ. So John is bringing our attention over and over again to the idea that salvation is God's gracious gift to us offered through Jesus as we finish up this prologue, we see John using the word grace four times. We see in verse 14, full of grace and truth. We see it in verse 16, we've received grace upon grace. We see it in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. And so what I'd like to submit to you this morning is that through the incarnation, through Jesus Christ, through God Becoming flesh, 
God is offering to you a gift of grace through the person of Jesus. God offers his gift of grace through the person of Jesus. This gift, I'd like to show you three aspects of this gift that I believe that John is revealing to us in these verses. In verse 15, I'd like to show you, first of all, that this gift is made available to men, to the world, through faithful witnesses. Through faithful witnesses. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. And if you ask good questions, we discover all sorts of things about Scripture. And so we ask the question, Why in the world does John, the Apostle John, who wrote the book, continue to reference John the Baptist? Why does he keep going back and reference John the Baptist said this, John the Baptist said this, this was John the Baptist's message as well. And I think the church fathers have early, the, 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 the pastors of the church early on in the first century kind of give us a picture into this. Chrysostom said the following, John the Baptist was a witness trusted by the Jews. Therefore, recognizing that the same message that's perpetuated in the early church is also the message of John the Baptist gives credence here to say this isn't some sort of new gospel. Chrysostom draws it back and he says, no, no, John the Baptist, Baptist gives credence. He gives a, a, a truthfulness to the message here to all the Jews to say, okay, we can trust this message because it's the message of John the Baptist. Early on in, in my ministry here, I found it very comforting for many people for me to reference some pastors in the past who had pastored Community Baptist Church to say, it's okay, Pastor Sprunger would have done this as well. Or Pastor Stedman would have said the same thing. I know that because I called Pastor Stedman and I asked him. And for many who were here who saw this young 30-year-old coming in to try to shepherd a church, I, I used that tool often of calling previous ministers that were here and saying, I need help. What would you do in this situation? What do you think about this? Sometimes it was, yeah, don't do that. You know, <laughs> Don't say that very, very wisely. And, and just as that statement brought comfort to many in this church that, that when we were taking steps that required faith, steps that were biblical that required faith, that it was steps that had also been testified by faithful men of God in the past. So John is, is referencing to all the Jews, as he's saying, he, his message is to the, the Gentiles and the Jews, but in this instance, he's referencing John the Baptist to say, listen, this was John's message as well. John the Baptist, as we'll see later on in, in chapter 1, pointed to Jesus and said, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if you've wondered why the Apostle John continues to, to pull in John the Baptist, perhaps that will answer that question for us. And we really see two aspects of John's ministry given to us in verse 15 and verse 16. The first one is that John bore witness about Jesus. John accurately explained, John the Baptist accurately explained who Jesus was to all who would listen. 
This word witness here in verse 15, John bore witness, is the same, uh, the same wording that we would see in a courtroom of saying, call a witness to see if it's true. What I'm telling you is true and I'm calling the witness. We're going to cross-examine him and he's going to give us accurate statements about what's happening. And here John the Apostle is calling John the Baptist to the witness stand and saying, John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus. Here's what he said. Here's what he did. He was telling you the truth. And how did John bear witness? Did he do it with his weird clothing of camel hair or his awkward diet of locusts and honey? How did John bear witness about the truth? The next phrase tells us in verse 15, he bore witness about Jesus. How? By crying out. John recognized a truth that it would do good for us to recognize this morning in the 21st century, and it's this. It's not just enough to live for Jesus. I must use my words to put a name to the difference that people see in my life. When people see the fruit of the Spirit lived out, because that's what sanctification produces, and they say, why are you different? Why don't, why don't you get angry like we do? Why don't you participate in immorality like we do? Why, why don't you give up? Why do you remain faithful? Why do you show love? It's your responsibility as it was John's to put a name to the fruit of the Spirit, and that's the name of Jesus. He used his voice to point people to Christ. In his witness, he recognized the supremacy of Christ. Look with me at what John said. This was he, verse 15, of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. That's the supremacy of Christ. In in, in the culture of the first century, it was very common to say, I was here first. Perhaps you've heard discussions like that in your household. Get behind me for your turn. I was here first. I have the supreme position. My office is just outside the hallway, and often um, when, uh, when people are, children are getting water or in line for something, you may hear that phrase. No, 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 it's my turn. I was here first. And John the Baptist had every right to outrank Jesus because he was older than Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. And in the first century, it would seem ridiculous to give up a rank to someone younger than you. I have more experience. I have been around the block. It's, it's me who was here first, is what John is saying. He who comes after me, who, who is younger than me, ranks before me. And what John is recognizing is something very important, and it's this, that the power of the gospel is not in the vessel that holds the truth, but in the truth itself. John is saying, listen, yes, I have a message, and, and yes, I am crying out the truth, but my ministry, as we saw back in verses um, 6 through 9, John's ministry was not about himself. His ministry was to point people to Jesus, always. Matthew chapter 3 records this statement from John the Baptist. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
I baptize you with water, but it's not about me. I am cleansing you visually from your legalistic works. I am cleansing you from Judaism. When you go into the waters of baptism, this baptism of John the Baptist, it was to picture to everyone that you were washing off the past and you were ready to embrace Jesus. Friends, we need to make sure that our ministry efforts is not about us. We must continue to fade into the background as we push Christ forward. Your witnessing, your testimony for Christ, wherever God has planted you, it's not about you, it's about Him. And when you see people come to Christ, it's not about you saving them, it's about Him. And when people reject your message, friend, it's not just about them rejecting you, it was about them rejecting Christ. He recognized the supremacy of Christ. He who comes after me ranks before me. And look at his last phrase in verse 15. Look down with me in this very important phrase. Because he was before me. And rather than just recognizing the supremacy of Christ, John the Baptist's message was to recognize the eternality of Christ. I may be older than him, but he was actually in existence far before me. That he that comes after me is more important than I am because he's not really coming after me. He was here long before me. And could it be that Micah 5.2 was in the mind of John the Baptist, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of day. And here, John the Baptist putting these truths together and seeing them in the person of Jesus. Later on in this gospel, Jesus claims this eternality for himself. In John chapter 8, the Jews came around him and they say, you're not 50 years old yet. Have you seen Abraham? And there's a lot of context too we'll get to later. But Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. As Jesus claims this status of divine infinitude, eternality, they knew what he was doing, so they picked up stones to throw at him. Paul also gives us this truth in Colossians 1.17. He is before all things. It's talking about Jesus. And it's not just saying he's more important than everything. It's saying that he existed before everything. That he is the creator and everything was created through him. But what I want you to see in verse 15 is that this message of the gospel is given to human witnesses. I mean, John references it in verse 6. He references it now in verse 15 of saying that Jesus came and he died on the cross, but he has given that message to you and to me. He's given it to people who will be his witnesses. Later on in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you see Jesus before his ascension looking at all his disciples and he says, you are going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you are going to go forward into all the world and you are going to be my witnesses. And so, friends, you are the witness as a child of God that God has given the responsibility of carrying this message of the good news of the grace of God 
It's up to you. It's not like every Monday at, at 9 p.m. You know, in, in Mishawaka, on a hill, if there is a hill in Mishawaka or anywhere around here, right? Or let's just say, you know, maybe the landfill. That's like the tallest hill around. That God's going to send down angels. And every Monday at 9 p.m., those angels are going to announce how wonderful God is and the message of the forgiveness of sins. That message hasn't been entrusted to the angels. It's been entrusted to you. As God's witnesses, it's your responsibility, like it was John's, to cry out and to give the message of grace. Use your words to point people to Jesus. Your life of holiness and righteousness is so important, but it only gives credence to the message that you speak. It may cause questions in people's lives as they see you. But you must put a name to the message of grace. And it's the name of Jesus. Not only is this gift given to witnesses to take, it's also given as the fullness of God. And this is an incredible truth. Look at verses 16 and 17. For from His, that's Jesus, For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I ended with the illustration last week of an infinity pool that is full and overflowing with fullness. And so what John is drawing our attention to in verse 16 is that Jesus had the fullness of God. That there was not any part of him that was not truly God in every way. Just like there was not any part of him that was not human in every way. And it'll blow your mind because it's the union of God and man in the person of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. But, but John, the Baptist, or John the Apostle John here says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father, truly God. You could say full up being God, pouring out in all respects, his fullness. And you say, why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus possesses the fullness of God? A couple months ago, uh, Becky and I decided that we needed to get uh, our affairs in order and to update our, uh, our will and, uh, our, and all those documents that nobody really wants to talk about, right? And hopefully we never have to use, but we worked through all the, you know, you get this and you get this kind of thing, and there wasn't much there, but that's okay. And, uh, and most importantly, you get the kids. No, uh, but, uh, but to say, you know, we've got, uh, you know, where, where are the kids going to go? Where's, you know, where, where everything's going to go in the trust and all, all this kind of stuff. And we're very grateful to work with a lawyer here, here in the church who helped guide us through all that. And, and in there, there was a section that said, you know, precious valuables and recipients or something like that. In other words, uh, unless you put it down on this list, it's going to go into a big pot to be given out by the executor. But there may be certain things that you want to give to certain people. And all of us like to be on that list, right? You know, and so I started filling it out. And I'm like, to Costler, I give Matt Tracy's car, you know. <laughs> and to Shiloh, I give Pastor Ben's house. You know, and we keep it on the list, you know. 
And I could go on and on. I won't. I won't belabor that point. But you see where I'm going. And you laugh. Why? Listen carefully. I can't give as an inheritance or from myself something that I don't possess. Do you see that? But friends, if Jesus possesses the fullness of God, what can he give? The fullness of God. And it's crazy because that's exactly where John goes. I mean, look at the next phrase. The fullness we have all received. He's saying there's nothing about God that's left out. It's, it's this overflowing fullness through Jesus that when you are saved, you are placed in Jesus and Jesus gives you the spirit of the triune God to live inside of you. And that fullness of God is springing up. All of God is given to the one who comes to Jesus. Being saved is not about getting all this stuff. The Christian life is about placing yourself in Christ and embracing Christ. And because you embrace Christ, you're counted as a child of God. You are found to be in Christ. And as a result of that, the fullness of God is now present inside every believer. And friends, this is not something that happens at some later time. There are people who misrepresent the book of Acts and will say that, you know, there's a time where you're saved and then later on there's this moment where you receive the full Spirit and nothing could be further from the truth. Because he says clearly in verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received. All who come by faith, specifically referencing here those who are coming out of the Jewish nation and into Christ. When I say out of the Jewish nation, I mean out of the Jewish practices and laws, the Mosaic covenant and into the covenant of grace. Because he references, we have all received grace upon grace. There are a couple ways we could take this. Grace upon grace could mean grace and more 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 grace, which could be what John is referring to. And that is absolutely true. That, that you can, there, there is never a, a, a dearth of grace that's available to you or, or, or a lack of grace or however you want to say that. It's never as if you're going to go to God and need grace and it not be there or it be insufficient. It's as though you go with a totally empty cup and it's like a thimble at, you know, at a giant waterfall. Grace upon grace upon grace. Definitely that is a true statement, but I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what John means here because of where he goes next. Grace upon grace. For, that's our, our, our word that continues the thought, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I believe what John is communicating here is that there was a grace that was available in the law and there is a grace that is available through Christ. In referencing the law, John is referencing the Mosaic law given to 
given to Moses at Mount Sinai, if you remember that. Exodus chapter 20, really throughout the book of Exodus. But the purpose of the Old Testament law is misunderstood by a lot of people. We, we even talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. But what was the purpose of the Old Testament law? Well, looking at this, I, I'm, I'm going to give you five purposes, and I think this kind of summarizes why God would give the law to the Jewish nation. There is an overarching purpose that we'll kind of end with, but I think there are other purposes that God gives the law. You can find it in Galatians, I believe it's Galatians chapter 3. But the first thing, the first reason that God gave the law to the Jewish people was to restrain sin and physically protect the people. Don't murder, right? Don't steal. It, it offered a, a, an emergency break or a break to people's habits. This is good for human flourishing. It is best for you because it restrains sin and it protects people. Don't take advantage of those who are poor or those who are weak. Number two, it reveals to God's people how holy God is and what he actually requires for holiness. It's a revelation of God's character and to say, if you think you can be holy like God, try keeping this law perfectly. This is how holy I am, God says. Thirdly, it reveals the sinfulness of the people. It shows them that they can't keep it. I mean, think about it. You, you go once a year to offer a sacrifice because you live so far from the temple and your sacrifices are, are a picture of the sacrifice that is to come and God through his grace allowed this sacrifice of two turtle doves or whatever it is for this family to atone for their sins and on the way home he stubs his toe on a rock and sins. And now he's got to wait till next year because he lives so far away in order to offer a sacrifice again. You know, and you, and, and you say, it's so frustrating, but it's a reminder of the sinfulness. It says the pre, Hebrews says the priests stand daily, continually at the altar offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. That is a reminder of the sins of the people. And so God's law reminded the people that they were sinners. It also reminded them in the same vein that they are in need of a mediator and they are in need of an atoning sacrifice. But an animal can't pay the price for man's sin and so they were also reliant on God's mercy. So the law was this reminds them in a big picture that God is holy, they are sinful, they need a mediator, they need a sacrifice, and God better be merciful or they're all in really big trouble. It was also used, number four, to set the nation of Israel apart as distinct. They're different. There were things that were involved in the law that were simply there to remind them that they were different. And fifth, it provided a way for the Old Testament Jewish nation, it provided a way for sinful man to approach God. What is the only way that we can approach God? Through the law, through the priesthood, through the sacrifices. That God, the presence of God is in the Holy of Holies, and the only way to approach him is through the mediator of the priest and the high priest and the sacrifices. And the apostles knew this process. So when John says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, John knows intimately what that means because he was brought up that way. He was raised in the law. All of the apostles, the Jews, were, were raised in the Mosaic law. 
So much so that they misunderstood at the beginning of the book of Acts that you still had to be a Jew in order to be saved. And then John gives us this statement, the law was given through Moses for those five reasons in the Old Testament. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we have to ask the question, what is the relationship between the first statement and the second? This is very important. Okay, I know some of you, this may go a little bit, a little bit down, a little bit level deeper, but I want you to pay attention here, okay? Listen to the two statements. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we have to ask the question, what's the relationship of those two statements? In other words, did Jesus come to abolish the law, to burn the temple to the ground, and to say, you guys misunderstood everything that God said, and since you missed it, I came to right the ship, right? You guys have gotten so off course, God gave the law, you totally missed it, and I've come to right the ship, I've come to abolish the law, and the answer is no. God did not, Jesus did not come, God the Son did, did not come, made flesh to abolish the law. The reason we know that is true, because Jesus submitted himself to the law. And we see that over and over again in the Gospels. We're going to keep going on the negative route here. Neither did Jesus come to update the Old Testament law. Right? The Old Testament law was operating system 1.1. He came to give a software update and make it 2.0. You know? Jesus comes down and he says, hey, that was good. I'm better. I'm going to update it. Maybe you missed a few things. Maybe there are a couple things we forgot to give you guys. And I'm going to update this to be better. Jesus did not come to update the Old Testament law. Nor did he come to confirm the law. As Some would believe, even today, that the Mosaic law is still in effect, and Jesus came to confirm that law, so we must continue in that way. His role was not to assure everyone who viewed the Mosaic law that it was not outdated, and they needed to continue doing what they were doing. Nor did he come, very importantly, and this is where most people make the mistake, nor did he come to contrast himself with the law. In other words, the law is bad, I am good. The law was a burden, I have set you free. A lot of people think that. That's not the reason. That's not Jesus' interaction with the law here. The law offered you salvation by works, I offer you salvation by grace. That is not what's happening here at all. He's not giving this comparison and, and a contrast in this moment. Nor, lastly, I'll give you one more negative. These are all common views. Nor is John using this phrase as a current visual production of Jesus' life would say, that Jesus is the law. It's not what he's saying. That is not true. Somehow when we look back at the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, we should somehow read the person of Jesus into it. Oh, this Leviticus, this is Jesus, and this is Jesus, and this is Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not the way that we approach Scripture. Rather, 
Or we need to ask the question, what is, if that's not the relationship, what is the relationship? So what we've done is we've kind of taken, like, we're going to build a house of truth, and we've kind of taken a lot, and we've cut down all the trees. That's what we just did, okay? It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Well, what is it? Jesus came to fulfill the law in every respect. Jesus came to live under the law perfectly. Jesus came to keep the law in the way that no other human being could. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them the opportunity to reveal their love for the Father through obedience. And Adam failed. But Jesus succeeded. Jesus fulfills the law. He he correctly obeyed it in every respect. Throughout the pages of John, we're going to see people accusing Christ of disobedience to the law, but in effect, what Jesus is doing is saying, no, you misunderstood this in the first place. That's not what that's talking about. And he fulfills it in front of them. I think it'd be good for us to ask the question before we move on to the the last point um, this morning. What is our relationship to the law of God, the Old Testament? You could say the requirements that God has for perfection. In some ways, it mirrors the purpose of what it was in the Old Testament, and that is that it reveals to you that you can't keep it. It reveals to you that you need a mediator. Galatians chapter 4 calls it a schoolmaster or a, 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 a teacher that takes us to Jesus. I can't do this. But also looking back at the Old Testament as a New Testament Christian, we can also see that in Galatians 4, the, the Old Testament law is referenced as the elemental or elementary principles of God's people. In other words, this was like the law was like elementary school, and when Jesus came, we were graduated to the, to, the, to the law of grace, to the law of Christ. And Paul writes it this way, in the same way when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son that we might receive adoption. So we now live in the church age, recognizing that we are counted God's children through Christ. We also see that I have more here in Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 to 23 if you want to to look more into that and recognizing that adherence to rules and regulations can never produce sanctification. Your sanctification is not produced by your adherence to, to the law or to rules. It's produced by the Holy Spirit working through the word of God to change you from the inside out. And that's Colossians chapter 2, 20 through 23. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so your sanctification is not wrought, is not made uh, possible. Your sanctification is not accomplished by you adhering to a list of rules rather 
It's through the Spirit of Christ. And if we had time, we could trace that um, through Acts chapter 15 as well. And you can look at that later of, uh, of how Paul explains that to those who are recently saved or not, not a part of the Jewish culture. Let's look at the third gift, and then we're going to sum this up. Or the third aspect of this gift. So the gift of the gospel is made available to people through faithful witnesses. This gift of the gospel is actually the gift of the fullness of God through Jesus. And thirdly, this gift of grace is the revelation of the Father. It's the revelation of the Father. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We walk by faith and not by sight. No one has seen God. God's people... Since we are walking by faith, God's people are not the people of the eye, but are the people of the ear. Thus, we, in, in, in our lives, give ourselves to the listening of the word of God, the public reading of scripture, the preaching of the truth of God, and not visual representations of who God is. You will not see icons or images of God in this building. As of the second commandment, Because we are not people of the eye, God is invisible, we should not make representations of what we think God looked like. We are people of the ear to listen to the word of God through the scripture. This is also a reminder not only that God is a spirit, but that God is so holy that God cannot be viewed by man. Not only can we not because we are not able to see the spirit realm, but we are not able because of our sinfulness. That God is holy, and we see that in Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 through 23, with Moses on Mount Sinai, and God says, no one can see me lest he die. Look at the next phrase. No one has ever seen God, the only God. In some some of your translations, you'll see the word son there. King James has it, the only begotten son. The NASB says the only begotten God. The CSB, the one and only son who is himself God which is the greatest explanation of what John is trying to accomplish here. The NLT, the unique one who is himself God. And in the Greek, it's just three words, the only God. And that's what the ESV is trying to communicate to us. No one's ever seen God, the only God. Monogenes, only unique. There's only one of him, one of one copies of this are impossible. As was referenced by someone in our community group this past Wednesday night in giving, we are talking about this concept and, and it was so insightful to give that, that illustration of it's not as though this is just one of many, but it's one of one. Copies are impossible because, as my dad would say, with that person, God threw away the mold. You know, like there are no others like this, Right? That's what this word means. Only, only, only the word son, huios, is not there. But the reason that if you're holding a CSB and a King James, you will see the word son there is because the translators don't want you to miss that he's talking about Jesus. This is a reference to Jesus. The only God is a reference to the only Jesus. He's not talking about the Father. It's, a, it's an explicit reference to the deity of Jesus here. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's Jesus. 
But John doesn't use son. He doesn't use Christos. He doesn't use Jesus. He uses Theos, God. So there's no arguing that the person that we're talking about is God the Son. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly Man, the same as referenced back in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father. It's monogonese, same word there, only Son. We see that again in verse 18. Only, there's only one. It's Jesus, the only God. And it's a direct reference to Jesus as being equal with God. It's only God who is at the Father's side. This is a parallel statement with verse 1. If you look back, look back at verse 1 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John has swapped those two here, and he said, the only God, the Word was God. Who is at the Father's side? The Word was with God. It's talking about a distinction from the Father, a Trinitarian statement, three persons, one essence. We worship a triune God. We worship one God, a God the God who is at the Father's side. This word side is really interesting here. It, it's referenced in Luke chapter uh, 16 and verse 22 to talk about Abraham, or to talk about the, the poor man who died and he was in Abraham's, the King James says, Abraham's bosom. I think it's more fascinating here that this, this same word side is referenced in Acts 27.39. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn there real briefly. Acts 27.39. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But if, if you have it and you like to write in your Bible, this is, a, uh, a, is going to act as a beautiful illustration of what John's trying to communicate here. We'll see if you can spot the same word. Acts chapter 27. This is Paul's shipwreck. Paul's boat is just getting tossed to and fro. In Acts chapter 27, verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And we've got our same word there. It's the word bay. What's a bay? Let's put it this way. What are they looking for in this boat? They're looking for a place of security. Looking in to say, we are, we are exposed to the elements out here in the ocean, and we need to find a bay. And sure enough, they look and they find a bay, because in that bay they are sheltered. It is a place of rest. It is a place of security. Reference to people, it's a place of love. When, when someone you love feels vulnerable and they see you as providing some sort of security, what do they do? They run to you and they come to your side and they want to be enveloped and safe. It's a place of love. Some of you sitting in church have your arm around your spouse or your significant other until it falls asleep and then you've got to shake it out, right, and put it back. But, but it's the act of love. Because in that moment, you can pull them to your side. Like a bay that protects from the elements. And so, and so it's this intimate word that says, God the Son is at the side of the Father. That God the Son is the recipient of the Father's love. Now, it's not two different gods. It's one God. 
two person, three persons. We're referencing the second person here. But what I want to show you is that there's so much here that John is communicating. He actually also uses this phrase later to talk about when Jesus is reclining at the table and he's reclining with the one whom Jesus loved and was at his side. That there was one who had a special friendship with Christ and it was the Apostle John. This relationship of love that the Son then shares with us so that we are pulled to the Father's side as well. That last phrase in verse 18, he has made him known. What is God like? Look at Jesus. If God were on this earth, what would he do? Look at Jesus. Because as a man, he lived out what it looks like to be God. And his compassion for those who are suffering, those down and outers, and his mercy, and his zealousness for the truth, I must go to Jerusalem. The overturning of the tables in the market when they had misrepresented who God was, a zealousness for truth, unashamed of the Father, patient towards the disciples. If you're struggling with patience, I think I've said this before, but I think it'd be worth repeating again. If you struggle with patience, as we all do, but some of us more than others, if you struggle with patience, a great Bible study that you need to do is to trace through how Jesus interacted with his disciples when they were total and complete idiots. Because for some of us, it's like, I'm okay to get angry as long as they deserve it, right? Like if they do something stupid, I have the ability to be stupid back, and it's kind of an excuse. But Jesus was not that way. He's pouring his heart out to his disciples, and he's like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer And I'm going to die for the sins of mankind. The disciples are like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But when we get to heaven, who's going to be on your right hand? Oh, I'm afraid to ask you. So I'm going to send my mom to ask you. And he responds in love, compassion. And every time you get across one of those, you write down how Jesus responded and you pray, Lord, make me like that. Compassion, patience. And friends, he was obedient in all things. Obedient in all things. I'm going to take this brief moment to offer in a plug for the Sunday evening service tonight. I would highly encourage you to come back tonight. If you are physically unable, you can join us on the live stream, but I would highly encourage you to come back tonight because Pastor Ben is going to be looking at the book of Hebrews and asking the question, how did Jesus obey? And How can we obey like Jesus? It's going to be, no pressure, but it's going to be an incredible message um, because we talked about it this week. And uh, what a blessing that's going to be tonight to look at Jesus and say, how did Jesus obey and then how can I obey that same way? In conclusion, we need to look at verses 1 through verse 18 as a whole because that's the way it's meant to be read. And I like to give you 
five brief takeaways. I'm going to say them faster than you can write them down. So if you'd like them, I can email them to you afterwards. But here are five applications and takeaways from our time together in the prologue. Number one, the incarnation is so much deeper and more consequential than you can ever imagine. It's so much more important than just a baby in the manger at Christmas. The word became flesh. And there's so much more there than you and I could understand in a hundred lifetimes. And so as we scrape the surface, what a blessing we would receive if we would continue to study the blessings of the incarnation. Number two, the doctrine of the Trinity shapes the gospel in every way. As John continues to reference back to Three persons in one God. Number three, God is not looking for a fourth member of the Trinity. And you are not it. But you can be a witness to the one God that we serve and worship. You can be a willing witness to point people to the one true God. Number four, the only light that can pierce the darkness of this world is the light of the gospel. The darkness of this world that pervades minds and hearts, that enslaves, that blinds from the evil one. The only power that can shine light into the darkness is the light of the gospel. So quit trying to argue with people and just talk about Jesus. And fifthly, The glory of the cross is something that cannot be seen unless a person's eyes are opened by God. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only Son. The only God who is at the Father's side. And so those are the truths. Five of, I could have written 30 or 40 as we go through here, but just maybe five of simple truths that we can anchor our hearts in. We summarize verses 1 through 18. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that uh, you've given us the opportunity to come together to hear your word preached. And I pray that you would use it in a mighty way in our hearts as we gather again this evening. Would you give us the grace to recognize how Jesus obeyed as a man and how we can obey in the same way as we live for you. 